This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 21. As you make your way to the 21st chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Job was a man of integrity who feared God and shunned evil. While it's true that Job was an upright man who was determined to spend his life serving the Lord, it's also true that the Lord allowed a fallen angel known as Satan to attack the family, the flocks, as well as the flesh of his faithful servant Job. As a result, Job's sons and daughters perished in a horrific windstorm, and on the same day, His oxen and donkeys were stolen by a band of raiders. Then fire fell from the sky and burned up his sheep as well as many of his servants. And finally, Job's flesh was struck with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And it was in the midst of that tragedy and in the midst of that trial when Job's wife encouraged him to simply curse God and die. Ah, yes, the sweet support of a seething spouse. If that wasn't bad enough, Job also had three friends who decided that they needed to convince Job that God was actually punishing him for some sort of unrepentant sin that he was clearly committing. And I'm, of course, referring to Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuahite, and Zophar the Namathite, each of whom took their turn trying to convince Job that he needed to repent of sins that he wasn't committing. Well, it was in our study last week when we considered the way that Zophar wrapped up the second round of accusations by declaring, Zophar's so good. No, he didn't say that, but that's what I would have said. But It's here in our text tonight where we find Job now responding to the unfounded accusations of Zophar. And while Job continued to defend himself by maintaining his spiritual integrity, it's also true that he was still wrestling with the loaded question regarding the reason for why the Lord was afflicting him with these trials. He wanted to know why was God punishing him when, in fact, it wasn't God punishing him. The Lord wasn't punishing Job. Instead, the Lord allowed Satan to put Job's faith to the test. And as we consider the way that Job responded to those satanic attacks, Well, we ought to take some time tonight to consider our own response to the tests and the trials, even the tragedies that the Lord allows us to endure during our time here on this planet. Do we complain about the trials and the troubles of this world? Or do we rejoice in these opportunities that allow us to become those believers who are learning how to grow in grace and in truth and even in the time of trials? Well, with this question in mind, let's consider Job's response to Zophar's accusations. We, are, uh, we should turn our attention here to Job chapter 21. And if you would, let's begin reading there, beginning at verse 1. Here we learn that Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak, and after I have spoken, keep mocking. Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job. He's encouraging his friends to pay close attention to the words coming out of his mouth. And it's there in verse 2 where he assures his friends you know, that, that, uh, uh, that he's going to present a, a, a defense here. He wants them to pay close attention then to his defense so that they might find consolation in knowing that he wasn't walking in wickedness. They were concerned that he was living in a, in a life of sin, 
But he's saying, hey, hey listen to me. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you, I'm not doing these things. And so he was in some ways trying to console them by helping them to know he's not living in sin. And, and just to be clear, the word consolation that's found there at the, the, at the end of verse 2, it's actually translated from the same Hebrew word that Eliphaz used back in chapter 15. It's there in verse 11 where he asked Job, are the consolations of God too small for you? And the word spoken gently with you. In other words, it was Eliphaz who was assuring Job back in chapter 15 that the Lord sent them to comfort him with gentle words of correction. And, and, and so, you know, Eliphaz was saying, hey, you know, are these consolations that the Lord is, is you know, presenting through us too small? Is, it, is, is this too small of a thing? Well, in Job chapter 16, Job responded by using the root of that same word, translated consolation, uh, and, and he, he used the root word, which is comforter, and he did, did this by calling these guys miserable comforters. That's what he called them, miserable comforters. And, and not only that, but it's here in our text tonight where we find Job, he's actually using now the same exact word that Eliphaz used back in chapter 15, and he's using that word here in response to Zophar. And as we consider the sarcastic tone of this statement here, there's no doubt in my mind that Job really wasn't trying to comfort them. I don't think that Job was trying to comfort them with consoling words. No, he's clearly upset with these guys who had come uh, become his miserable comforters. And it's for this reason that he encourages them to hear him out. He's saying, everybody just calm down, listen to what I'm saying. I'm telling you the, the truth here. And then he, he concludes this opening statement with, and, and then you can get back to your mocking. He's saying, hey, listen to what I have to say, and then you can go back to your false accusations, right? And as we consider Job's sarcastic response here in the beginning of this chapter, I want to take a moment to ask, was Job responding with love? Was Job being loving in his response, or was he just stirring up strife with more sarcastic words? Well, it seems to me that Job was actually stirring up strife with sarcastic words, and if I had to guess why, well, he was upset. He was upset. And, and he was upset with the men, his friends, who had come to comfort him, and yet there was no comfort in their words. Well, in light of Job's response, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, how should we respond whenever our friends try to help us with incorrect counsel? How should we respond? How should we react whenever the people who care about us falsely accuse us with unjustified assertions? Well, with this question in mind, I want to consider the encouragement of King Solomon. It's in Proverbs chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. There Solomon declares, The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Christian, listen, it's hatred that leads us to stir up more strife. Conversely, the Christian who is walking in love, well, they're going to respond in such a way that allows for the misconceptions of our friends who, you know, offer us incorrect counsel. We're going we're gonna to love them even in the midst of that. Listen, if your friends come to you with incorrect counsel, maybe even false accusations, but their heart was to come alongside you and help, why not just focus in on that? They might be wrong about what they're saying, but hey, at least they cared enough about you to come and uh, give you a hand or, or at least try to be your friend. Without debate, Job's friends were wrong to accuse Job of living in sin because he wasn't. 
And yet, let's not forget that they're, they're the ones who cared enough to come alongside them. They're, they're the ones who traveled from, you know, some great distance to come alongside of him. They mourned with him in silence for seven days. And, and yeah, their counsel was incorrect. But isn't it nice to know that people care about you? I'm sure we've all, had, we've all had friends who have tried to help us and only ended up offering incorrect counsel or, or possibly presented false accusations. And while it's easy for us to respond to them with a critical comeback, I encourage you to remember that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Well, with this as the goal, I want to continue to consider the complaints that Job presented here in this response. And if you would look with me here at Job chapter 21, I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 4, because here Job declares this. He says, as for me, is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember, I am terrified and trembling takes hold of my flesh. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's reiterating the fact that his complaints weren't against them necessarily. No, instead, his complaints were actually against God. And to prove my point, I want to remind you that it was back in his first response to Bildad. That's when Job used the same Hebrew word rendered complaint in this passage and in that passage. It's back in Job chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. That's where Job declares, my soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Now here in these verses, we find Job, he's clearly directing his complaints to God. And the reason why was because he believed that God was the one who had condemned him and without real reason. Not only that, but Job was bitter because he believed that the Lord was the one who was contending with him through the critical counsel of his friends. Well, now here in our text tonight, we find Job. He's now reminding his friends of the fact that his complaints had less to do with them and more to do with God because he saw them as an extension of God's condemnation of him. And so he does this by asking, is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? As we consider this question, I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render uh, verses 4 through 6, they put it like this. My complaint is with God, not with people. I have good reason to be so impatient. Look at me and be stunned. Put your hand over your mouth in shock. When I think about what I am saying, I shudder. My body trembles. Now from this we can see here that Job was complaining because he truly believed that God was the one who had covered his body in boils. And in similar fashion, you know, there are many Christians who are quick to cry out with complaints about God whenever they find themselves facing the trials and the troubles of this world. And with that being the case, I just want to remind you that when the Lord created the earth, he made everything good. With each day of creation, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. God made everything good, and not only that, but every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or, or shadow of turning. Everything that comes to us from God is good and not evil. Therefore, every evil thing is either caused by the devil and his demons, you know, the devil and the, and, and the demons 
want to bring degradation to God's creation, and in that, in that way, evil is then introduced. Or, or there's also the, the sinful decisions of humans that result in evil. But everything that comes from God is good. That being the case, I can assure you that if there's anyone to complain about, it's not God. If there's anyone to, to start complaining about, let's begin with ourselves, knowing that we introduce a lot of evil into our own lives just through the sinful decisions that we make. And, and then there's the others, and then there's the devil and the, and the demons, and, but, but not God. God, God. God is not the one to complain about. If you're prone to complaining about your situation, as am I, I should remind you about the encouragement that Paul presented in Philippians chapter 2. There he declares, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and generous, uh, perverse generation, uh, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And you might be thinking, Pastor Bungie, I, 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 didn't, didn't you just quote this Bible verse just a couple of weeks ago? Yes, I did, and stopped complaining about it. Listen, regardless of the trials and the troubles that we're enduring today, we've been called to do all things without complaining and disputing. And, and listen, this is true even when we find ourselves surrounded by miserable comforters. If you have friends that have become your miserable comforters, don't complain about them. But maybe just consider that, hey, at least I got some friends. They're horrible comforters, but, but they're my friends, right? In order to further make my case, let's continue to consider Job's complaints that are found here in the 21st chapter of this book. And so look with me there beginning at verse 7. Here Job asks, why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull breeds without failure. Their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth, and in a moment go down to the grave. Yet they say to God, depart from us, for we don't, do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Once again, we find Job, he's complaining He's complaining about the way in which the Lord allows the wicked to prosper. And while we might be prone to complain about the same thing as we look around us and see wicked people prospering, we must not lose sight of the fact that uh, we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Aren't you glad that the Lord was patient with you? when you were living in wickedness? I know I am, because listen, the, the Lord would have been completely just to cast me into the pit of hell prior to my conversion to Christ. And the reason why is because I was living in wickedness. 
And, and so I, I'm, I'm just so thankful that the Lord was patient with me in my wickedness. Now, should I turn around and pull up the ladder behind me, so to speak? Look at all these wicked people. Look at the wicked things that they're doing. I wish God would just send them to hell. Wait, did, I mean, you wanted the grace of God, right? When it came to, to your realization that you deserved hell, I mean, you, you were quick to cry out for the grace of God. And shouldn't we have the same compassion for those who are still walking in wickedness? With this question in mind, I want to remind you of the point that Peter presented in 2 Peter chapter 3. There he declared, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Christian, listen, it's the Lord's will to give every person the opportunity to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And the reason why is due to the fact that he doesn't want anyone to perish in the lake of fire. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. And the Lord wants us to come to repentance so that we can be saved. That being the case, listen, those who are truly walking in the love of the Lord will spend less time complaining about those who are wicked and will spend more time trying to reach them with the gospel of God's grace, which is received by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. With this as the goal, let's continue to consider Job's complaints that are found here in the 21st chapter of this book. If you would look with me there, we'll pick up at verse 17. Here Job asks, How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger. They are like straw before the wind and like chaff that a storm carries away. They say, God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? Now as we read these verses, you know, Job's complaint gets a little lost in the NKJV translation. And you know me, I, I love the New King James Version of the Bible, but sometimes it just doesn't provide us with the, the, the best understanding of the author's original intent. And so with that, I'd like to read these verses, but in the New Living Translation, those scholars render these uh, verses in this way. The light of the wicked never seems to be extinguished. Do they ever have trouble? Does God distribute sorrows to them in anger? Are they driven before like wind? Uh, like uh, before the wind like straw? Are they carried away by the storm like chaff? Not at all. Well, you say, at least God will punish their children, but I say he should punish the ones who sin so that they understand his judgment. Let them see their destruction with their own eyes. Let them drink deeply of the anger of the Almighty, for they will not care what happens to their family after they are dead." Now here in these verses we find Job, he's complaining about the way in which the Lord allows the wicked to flourish. And not only that, but in the mind of Job here, the, the Lord was failing to punish them for all of their wicked ways. And even when they're finally you know, dead, that they, they won't care what happens to their family. Now we know that's patently false because of, of the story that Jesus tells us of, of the rich ruler who ends up in Hades and wants Lazarus to go back and warn his family. 
So we know that the people who end up in hell are very concerned about their family not joining them there. But Job doesn't understand this. He's just a man who, you know, was just upset and complaining and, and wondering why he's getting punished. He, you know, he, he's this man who, who did his best to live his life for the Lord, and yet he's filled with frustration as he considers his own situation and the suffering that he's enduring and and it's for this reason that he cries out for the destruction of the wicked. Now again, as we consider Job's complaint here, I can't help but to remember something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. It's verses 43 through 48 where he declares this. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do, do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Christian, listen, the Lord doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does not take pleasure in the everlasting punishment of those who refuse to repent. No, he, he wants them to be saved, and so he's called us to go into the world and love those who hate us. He's called us to pray for the wicked people who spitefully use us. He's called us to preach the gospel to those who persecute us. He wants to save those who are wicked. And so those of us who are quick to cry out for the destruction of the wicked... Well, we ought to take some time to remember that the Lord wants the wicked man to turn from their way so that they can live, and isn't that good news for us? Isn't that good news for us? I mean, you know, we have benefit from the graciousness of God. And so we ought to pray for those who are wicked so that they too might benefit from the grace of God rather than complaining about the evil people in this world. And listen, when I get in Austin traffic, this is very difficult. Very difficult. So many evil drivers. And, you know, just to call them out explicitly, if people are passing you on the right, you are evil. You are a wicked, evil Austin driver. So if people are passing on the right, move over, get over. The left is for passing, the right is for slow people. So anyway, listen, I'm not complaining, I'm just critiquing. But seriously, rather than complaining about the evil people in this world, let's use that energy to go out and lead them to Jesus. Listen, I didn't want to live a holy life until I came to Christ. Before that, I, I loved the pursuit of wickedness. But coming to faith in Jesus Christ and, and receiving the Holy Spirit who dwells within me, all of a sudden I, I had new desires, a, a desire to be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. 
And, and if you really would like to see less wicked people in the world, then lead them to Jesus. Because that's the solution. If you see someone living in wickedness, co-worker, boss, Austin driver, whatever, lead them to Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit will sanctify them and help them to stop being wicked. Sadly, Job you know, has lost sight of this truth that the people of God ought to be you know, ministering to those who are wicked so that they might come to faith in the Lord. And Job lost sight of this because, you know, he's more focused on his own mortal life. And with this in mind, I want to pick up our study of Job chapter 21. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 22, here Job asks, Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those on high? One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk, and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They lie down alike in the dust, and worms cover them. Now, to sum up these verses simply, Job's basically saying, whether you're good or bad, we're all going to die. Doesn't matter if you're good, doesn't matter if you're bad, we're all going to die. And you can spend your entire life eating right and working out and then die healthier than most other people. Yep. Healthy people die. And you can mukbang your way to an early grave. Gonna die. You can spend your life pursuing every wicked and worldly pleasure and then die in the midst of your depravity, or you can live your life for the Lord in the purity of holiness, and then die in perfect peace. Either way, we're going to die. So let's just wrap up the study here tonight, and I'll go home. Listen, unless we're here when the rapture occurs, we're going to die. It's just a fact of life, right? Two things that are certain in life, what, death? taxes. To put it in the words of Job, we're all going to lie down alike in the dust as the worms cover us. Thanks, Job. That being the case, you know, every person will do well to make sure that we're living our life today with a focus on the fact that our death is just a doorway into eternity future. Yeah, we're all going to die. But that's not the end of the story. That death is a doorway that brings us before the Lord. And, and death is going to bring every believer before the righteous judge of heaven and earth. And, and death is going to bring every unbeliever before the righteous judge of heaven and earth. For the unbeliever, you know, they're going to end up before the great white throne judgment where they're going to be judged for every work and punished accordingly. For the believer we're going to end up before the bema seat of Jesus Christ and we're, we're going to receive rewards for those things that we did in the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that being the case, Christian, you know, don't just be that believer who's like, well, I got my fire insurance, now I can just live any old way. Because if, if you're living in that sort of greasy, gray, sloppy, agape sort of, you know, I can just live any old way, well, First of all, I would question whether you're a Christian or not because a real born-again believer doesn't think that way. 
but maybe you're a backslidden believer, listen, you're still going to stand before the beam of judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And I like the way that Peter describes this here in 1 Peter chapter 4. It's uh, here where he declares this, Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." And so as, as we walk by faith with the Lord, we have to understand that we're eventually going to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead, and so will the unbeliever. We're all going to eventually give an account of our lives. Now, what kind of, what kind of account do you want to give before the Lord? And it's with this perspective that we're you know, empowered to then think through decisions every day. Is this something that's pleasing to the Lord or not? And somebody says, hey, do you want to come to the party where everybody's going to get drunk? Hmm. Peter says no. We've spent enough of our lifetime doing these things. Hey, do you want to go to the movie that's filled with nudity? No. Peter says no. We shouldn't be walking in lewdness and lust. We have to think through our decisions with an eternal perspective because we are going to die. And we are going to stand before the one who judges the living and the dead. And this eternal perspective not only helps us with daily decisions, but it also helps us to endure the trials and the troubles and the tragedies that we face here in this world. You see, whenever we find ourselves in these times of trial, you know, those who keep their eyes on the prize will realize that the afflictions that we face today only last for a moment. And not only that, but the same afflictions that we experience here in this world are producing for us a glory that vastly outweighs the pain and the suffering that we endured during our days here on earth. That being the case, we need to maintain an eternal perspective. Job, he's focused on, we're all going to die. Woe is me. The worms are going to eat me. You know, that's, that's his focus. I, I, I live in pain and suffering, and then I die, and it's done. Bummer. And, and so with that heart, what does he do? He, he starts complaining about everything. He lives his life just a, you know, complainer, who probably was just difficult to be around. And we have to make it our goal to keep our perspective on heavenly things, remembering that death is the doorway that leads us into eternity, and what we do here in this world is going to impact our lives forever. So how much more time do you want to spend on lewdness and lust and drunkenness and drinking parties and these sorts of things? Because that waste of life is going to be echoed in the lack of reward, Christian, forevermore. 
that being the case, we should maintain an eternal perspective so that we can turn every complaint into a reason to rejoice in the rewards that we'll eventually receive on the day when every believer stands before the beam seat of Jesus Christ. And listen, the eternal perspective will not only help us to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the throne of grace, but the eternal perspective will also help us to quit worrying so much about those who love to spend their time spreading rumors about us. And with this as the focus, let's consider the concerns that Job shared here in our text tonight. Let's pick up our study of Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. There he declares, Look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you would wrong me. For you say, Where is the house of the prince? And where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Have you not asked those who travel the road? And do you not know their signs? Here in these verses we find Job, he's sharing his concerns about those who were gossiping about him. And there should be no doubt that there were those who were, you know, <clears throat> gossiping about him and spreading rumors about him. They were probably, you know, talking amongst themselves about why Job was suffering. And chances are a majority of them were assuming that Job must have been sinning for for the wrath of God to come down on him in this sort of way. And yet we know that all, all of that was just a bunch of lies. These were lies because we know that Job was a man of integrity. We know that man, uh, Job was a man who loved the Lord. He feared the Lord and shunned evil. We know that Job wasn't receiving the punishment of God, but rather an attack of Satan. And so those who were assuming that Job was on some sort of, you know, punishment plan from, from God, you know, that they were, they were spreading lies. And listen, it's been rightly said that a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth puts its shoes on. And everybody loves to be the talebearer when they hear something and, and, and it sounds so, ooh, you know, that's, that's, that's dirty news right there and... And you, and you spread it to somebody else, and then they, they get on the AT&T friends and family plan, they tell two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell two friends, and so on and so forth. Lies can travel halfway around the world before truth even gets its shoes on. And listen, this is truer today than it was when that statement was first made. The use of technology and social media platforms has turned millions and millions of people into global gossipers. Now we can have a global audience with these social media platforms. And you know whether we're talking about the gossip and rumors being spread within a small community of people or we're talking about the misinformation and fake news that's being spread by the mainstream media you know those who have an eternal perspective don't need to worry about all of that how difficult is it for you when you hear people spreading rumors about you i have no doubt it's painful and to that i say Stop reading the press. Quit checking social media. Quit worrying about it. Why, why would you worry about this? Why are you worried about what liars say about you? Put your focus back where it belongs. 
And I want to consider how Paul puts this in Colossians chapter 3. There he declares, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Rather than wasting time worrying about what the people are saying about us there at the rumor mill, let's just, let's just become those believers who set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the throne of grace. And as we maintain this eternal perspective, well, we'll stop worrying so much about the rumors that sinners are spreading about us. Now, with this as the goal, I want to consider the complaint that Job presents here in the final verses of this chapter. So look with me once again there at Job chapter 21. We'll pick up our study at verse 30. Here he declares, For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. Who condemns his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? Yet he shall be brought to the grave. And a vigil kept over the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. Everyone shall follow him, and countless have gone before him. How then can you comfort me with empty words, since falsehood remains in your answers? Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job. He's helping his friends to understand that their words provide him with no comfort at all. And the reason why? Well, it's because all of their accusations were false and filled with deceit. He's saying, hey guys, you're not comforting me because everything you're saying is a lie. And in this way, Job also seems to be suggesting here that they were the wicked ones who were being reserved for the day of doom. He talks all about you know, how the wicked are, are going to be you know, reserved for the day of doom and, and they're going to be condemned and they're going to be repaid and there's going to be a grave and there's going to be a vigil and there's going to be dirt clods you know, and, and all of this. And then he says, and so your words don't comfort me. Because this is what's going to happen to you guys. As we consider the complaint that Job was launching against his friends who were making false accusations against him, we must confess that there is an element of truth here. They were lying about him. They were making false accusations against him. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were all guilty of making false allegations about Job. And knowing that no one is comforted when they find out that people are lying about them, Job was justified when he rebuked those miserable comforters. He was justified to challenge them about their their lies. At the same time, though, listen, it's also important for us to remember that there are those who really don't care to be corrected, and so we probably shouldn't waste a whole lot of time on trying to correct them. There are those who, they just don't even care that they should be corrected, that they should receive a rebuke. They, they're not going to receive a rebuke. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't go challenge them when they sin against us? Well, no. I mean, the scriptures are perfect, perfectly clear that if somebody sins against us, we should go to them and challenge them. We, don't, we shouldn't go to the rumor mill. We shouldn't go to the gossip factory. We shouldn't go gather around with all the people who would love to talk about that person with us because that's all sin. Oh, so we're supposed to go to the person who has sinned against us. If they lie against us, if they falsely accuse us, if they make up rumors about us, then we should go to them personally, one-on-one, and challenge them. 
And if they don't receive it, then we are to take another person along, a mature brother or sister in Christ, to to witness the rebuke. And then if they don't receive that, then to turn it over to the leaders of the church and let the church deal with it. That's the very plain and simple way to deal with these sorts of things. And it's also important to remember that you know, there's no reason for us to continue to suffer the abuse of those who make false accusations against us by continuing to put ourselves you know, within their sphere of influence. Listen, it, forgiveness is not equal to I will suffer the abuse of this person for the rest of my life. You can have a heart filled with forgiveness for them while also choosing to not be around them. That being the case, we should take a moment to consider the instructions that Paul presents to Pastor Titus in Titus chapter 3. It's verses 9 through 11. Here Paul declares, Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Christian, listen, if you find yourself being drawn into foolish disputes with those who love contention, well, you ought to admonish them at least once, maybe twice. But after that, turn it over to the leaders of the church and just back away slow. There comes a point in time when we must realize that those who love to create this sort of drama because they're contentious, well, they're warped and sinning and self-condemned. And we don't have to subject ourselves to their abuse. Rather than continuing to contend with them, let's realize that some people just want to create conflict. Some people just want to watch the world burn, you know, that, that sort of thing. You know, there's just some people that just want to get in and disrupt, you know, uh, relationships and cause conflict and these sorts of things. And Paul says they're warped. They're sinning. They're self-condemned. They may be sociopaths. And we don't have to prove that we're forgiving people by placing ourselves under their constant abuse. Paul tells us, reject a divisive person after the first or second admonition. And listen, as we reject these divisive people who want to cause contention, man, we get so much energy back, don't we? There's so much energy that now we can focus on serving others. Some people just want to take up our time and take up our energy and and cause contention and get us arguing and these sorts of things. And meanwhile, there's people that we could be serving. There's people that we could be, you know, working alongside of. And and, and there's people that we could be enjoying their relationships if we weren't just so invested in this one person who is clearly a divisive individual. With that, I encourage you, follow Paul's instructions. Reject the divisive person after the first or second admonition. And then focus your energy on those who appreciate the service of the Lord. And in this way, we'll learn how to walk in the grace and in the truth of the Lord as we look for people to serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we might be prone to complain about those divisive people. 
We might be tempted to complain about them to others, but don't do it. Rather than complaining about those who are contentious, let's instead realize that complaining about contentious people will probably turn us into contentious people. So don't do it. Instead, let's pray for them so that they might see the error of their ways, so that they might repent of their wicked ways, so that they might receive the rebuke of maybe the elders who are going to come along and and challenge them. Don't complain about them. Pray for them so that they might repent. And in this way, we end up learning through the trials, through the, the, the tragedies, through the troublesome relationships, we, we, we learn how to walk in the love of the Lord. And as we learn how to walk in the love of the Lord, we become those born-again believers who are growing in the grace and in the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.